we continue to worship together, we're going to do our corporate prayer. And uh, you might remember that at the end of each silence, we end that silence by saying together, Lord, hear our prayer. And I just invite you to add your prayers wherever you're at and whatever you're bringing with you this morning. Add those prayers to mine in the silences. Let's pray together. God, we're so grateful for the ways that you continued to show up for us, for the ways that you faithfully reveal your presence. And our kids are one of the ways that you remind us that you are always up to something new, inviting us to see the world with wonder and imagination and with new eyes. And so this morning, as we enter the silence of your presence, we hold our hearts in a posture of openness, thankful for what you're doing, what you have done, and what you will do. Together, Lord, hear our prayer. God, we've often approached our world, our situations, with fear, and we've closed ourselves off from others and from you. We have held on to what we have tightly, but the psalmist reminds us that you are a compassionate God, that you side with the helpless, and that your generosity is like a shower of blessings. So forgive us for believing we have to hold tightly to what we have. Forgive us for rejecting the helpless parts of ourselves as well as those in our lives and world who feel helpless. Fill us again with your love, generosity, and compassion. Together, Lord, hear our prayer. Because you are generous, we ask you today for what we need. Many of us are grieving this morning. Would you be with us? Would you bring us comfort? Some of us are in need. Would you give your provision? Would you surprise us with your generosity? Some of us need direction. Give us ears to hear your voice telling us where to go. And give us the courage to follow you. And some of us are worried about those we love. Would you help us to surrender our anxieties and to wait for your timing? We ask for what we need.
together. Lord, hear our prayer. God, we pray for our city, our country, and our world. We pray for Afghanistan. We ask that you would be on the side of the helpless in that country, especially the women and the girls. We pray for Haiti. We pray for protection over those who are giving care to the injured. We pray for peace and stability for their turbulent government so that supplies can help, can reach where they need to go. We pray for our world. together. Lord, hear our prayer. And as we hold so many realities as a community this morning, God, the joy of our kids and our delight in them, our losses, our needs, the state of the world, we invite you into the middle of it. Use it all to make us more loving, more joyful, and compassionate. Make us the kind of community that witnesses to your love, joy, and compassion. Amen. Well, good morning. If, if you are just joining us, we've been in a teaching series all summer about wonder and about miracles and how paying attention to the mysterious parts of life open us up to God in new ways. So I'm Darlene Clausen. I'm one of the pastors here at Lakeview, and we are so glad to see you here this morning. We've been following two prophets, Elijah and Elisha, as they form a strand of prophetic voices in the faces of kings and rulers who either don't recognize or don't pay attention to God. So there are mysteries. There are strange events afoot. There are wars and lost axe heads and diseases and bears. And this series has also taken us into ongoing border skirmishes between Israel and the neighboring Syrians, who are also known as Arameans. So the stories are from First and Second Kings in our Bibles, historical books telling us some of the stories of Israel as kings come and go, as wars rise and fade, and as people slowly learn what it means to be the people of God. And that is a lifelong and a generation after generation long task for us as God's people. To learn in every context what it means to be the people of God. And God is constantly teaching us about himself and how to join in as God's people. There's often a tension between the things we've learned to know about God like, for example, that he loves us faithfully and the things we are experiencing in our lives with God when we go through unexpectedly difficult times. And the things we experience may bring us to the questions that we will hear in today's story. God, are you, are you Lord? Are you even there? Do you see any of this? Are you in a position of influence? or power? Are you Lord in the marketplace? Are you Lord in politics? In the world of commerce? In my schoolroom? In a hockey arena? 
at the cabin. These are the questions we find being asked at a profound level in today's story. So Curtis told us last week about Elisha temporarily blinding the Syrian army so he could lead them to a place that he had in mind, and then he prayed for their eyes to see again, and he led them to a feast which averted a war. Elisha, he's always creative in his strategies, comes up with new things all the time. And the kings of the Syrian armies are becoming quite annoyed with Elisha. They were trying to figure out how he was strategically beating them at every single turn. And somehow Israel always figured out what they were about to do and beat them before things even got started. But not this time. Not in this story. Today's tragedy was not averted by Elisha or the God he served and spoke for. So there had been peace for some time along this scrappy border, but eventually the Syrian army decided to engage in something called siege warfare. And the king, what he did is he pulled his entire army, marched up and laid siege to Samaria. There are so many examples of siege warfare in history. Armies surround a city, and then they cut off all the supply chains, and slowly everything that the people need to survive gets used up. There may be newcomers to Canada who have fled this kind of warfare. So during extended wars, necessary things need to be rationed as governments try to ensure that everyone can get a bit of what is needed. So World War II, for example, saw rations of food, of clothing, of gas, and even of soap. So I want to tell you a story about a soap ration. I heard this story from one of my daughter's friends, and I tell this story with permission. So one of the soldiers in World War II decided to help himself secretly to his senior officer's secret stash of soap. Seems this senior officer was not very well liked. Not many underneath him enjoyed his leadership, and it sounds like he was not including himself fairly in the rationing formulas. So. While the senior officer was having a bath, this unnamed soldier snuck into his leader's quarters and helped himself to two or three bars of soap. What is the value of a bar of soap? Anybody? What, how much did you spend on the last bar of soap you bought? Two dollars? Three? Oh, you don't buy your own soap. So, Mom, how much did you spend? A couple of bucks on a bar of soap. Well, this officer knew the value of the soap, and he bartered a trade of his two or three bars of soap for, guess what? Three, five million dollars. Ooh, that's a good guess. It was for three diamonds. He traded two or three bars of soap for three diamonds. And he carved a hole in the insole of his boot, and he hid them to get them home. And once home, he had them put into a ring, and then he proposed to the woman that he loved, who he left behind, who became his wife, who became the grandmother of the woman who told me this story. Three bars of soap traded for three diamonds. Think of that next time you take a shower. During times of scarcity, prices shift and values shift in very strange ways. Things do not mean what we think they mean. 
So our story in 2 Kings 24 starts by telling us the price of two things. Are you ready for this? They're not wood, not romaine lettuce, not soap or diamonds. It's the price of a donkey's head. Price of a donkey's head is 80 shekels of silver. That's just the head. And then the price of, now this next thing is hard to translate, so you'll find it translated differently in different Bibles. The message says, a bowl of field greens is five shekels of silver. The NIV says, a quarter of a cab of seed pods. I don't know what anything, I don't know what any of that stuff is. And then in the footnotes it, sa footnotes it says, or of dove's dung. Right, pigeon poop, basically. Possibly used as fuel. There is nothing to eat. The people are starving. So the king is walking on the wall of his starving city when a woman calls out to him for help. Now, have you ever walked on a wall? That's kind of fun. Now, there is one city in North America that is still a walled city. Quebec City still has walls. You can still actually walk on the walls and feel what it's like to look out over, over everything. It's bizarre and it's a very cool feeling. So, but this king, he's walking on the walls when a woman calls out to him for help. And his answer is just so quick. He says, if the Lord does not help you, where can I get help for you? The king at this moment has absolutely no power to solve the problems of this city. He acknowledges God as the first source of help, but there's no food he can offer. He can't shift the distribution strategies because there is nothing to distribute. And this woman tells him a gruesome tale of desperation that makes him tear his clothes. Now, in that culture, tearing clothes was a sign of sadness or grief. I don't know if we have a sign for sadness or grief. Do we? Like, I feel like we just kind of, if there's something sudden or sad, we go in, inward and we walk away to deal with it. But this king tore his clothes. It might be like, the only thing I can think of is if maybe if you're super angry and you throw something, like that would be an outward thing. But when we're super sad, we tend to go inward. When the king tears his clothes, everyone can see that he's wearing sackcloth under his robes next to his skin. And as I've sat with this story, the king, my perspective of the king has shifted. At the beginning, I was ready to go, these kings, right? These kings are never following God and they, they need the prophet to, to hold them. But the more I watch this king, it's like, this king is in despair. He's already wearing sackcloth. He doesn't show the people that he's grieving, but it's like this terrible, like it's this terrible itchy thing that you wear. It's not only an outward demonstration that you're grieving, but it's also my skin is going to feel as awful as things feel on the inside. I'm just going to do, I'm going to make it feel as bad on the inside as it feels on the outside. All right, I, I just thought back and forth. Am I going to do this? But I am. A Different King's Despair is being played at Shakespeare on the Saskatchewan. How many of you know Macbeth's soliloquy? Soliloquy. Okay, so I've, I've got it written down here, but I'm going to try, because this is the only Shakespeare I know. Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow. It is a poor player who struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying... Nothing. When kings despair, 
was a terrible thing for a nation. When the leader gives up hope. And the king is powerless to end the siege. He's powerless to help his people. And he decides to hold Elisha responsible for this reality. Elisha, after all, is the one who speaks the word of Israel's God. So the king is asking the questions that we talked about at the very beginning of the story. He knows that God is powerful. But the king, standing powerless in the midst of this terrible siege, where the people are dying, is perhaps doubting that God is good. Or that his timing is good. And he decides that if he can't fight the Syrians, he's going to take out God's prophet. So now this story shows us some sound and fury of its own. Not the kind that signifies nothing, though. There is sound and fury of powers colliding in the story. So first, the powers of Elisha and the king collide. Elisha actually sees the king coming because Elisha sees things that other people cannot see. It's one, of the, it's one of the things that Elisha has is vision that God decides to give him. So he tells the people who are hanging out with him that a murderer is on their way to them and they should shut and lock the door. Somehow the story unfolds without a murder, without a near murder. It just never materializes, but the king ends up just standing in front of the prophet. This disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait any longer for God? And Elisha's response, again, is unexpected. We've learned this from Elisha. He says, so about this time tomorrow, okay, now we're dealing with measurements again, a sea of flour, which is about eight liters, is going to cost one shekel. Do you remember how much a donkey's head cost? 80. Yeah, it was 80. So now Elisha says, within 24 hours, a sea of flour is going to cost a shekel. Two seas of barley is going to be a shekel. There is no flour right now. There's no barley. So one of the king's men scoffs. Elisha turns to him and says, well, you'll watch it with your own eyes, but you're not going to eat as much as a mouthful. And the whole story starts to pivot. Right here. At that moment, neither the king nor Elijah hear the sounds of God when they're talking to each other. But the Syrian armies do. Have you ever wondered what God sounds like? The storyteller of 2 Kings chapter 7 informs us that on this day, the sound of God sounded like the sound of armies. The Syrian armies were camped around Samaria, and they heard the sound of armies. And they assumed that the king of Israel had called in another couple of armies to help and come to their rescue. But it wasn't the sound of Egyptians and Hittites coming to fight. This was the sound of Israel's God. The Syrian army was so terrified that they just ran. The road behind them was littered with clothing and equipment that they had thrown away in their headlong flight. They fled at the sound of God. Now you know this, but no one else in the story knows it yet. So meanwhile, back at the city gates, there are four men who suffered from skin diseases. They were, they were called leprosy that required them to quarantine from the rest of the population. How many of you know what quarantine is? 
The last time I read this story, I did not know quite so intimately what quarantine meant. Okay, so we've got four guys who are contagious, so they thought, and they could not come into the city gates. Their condition was so desperate that they decided they had nothing to lose. So remember, a donkey's head costs 80 shekels of silver. We can stay here and starve, they thought. Or we can go into the city where we're not actually allowed to go and we could starve there because there's nothing there. Or we could go check out the Syrian camp and maybe they'll kill us there. Or maybe not. That was the only place with a survival loophole. We'll give ourselves up to the enemy. So these four lepers hadn't heard the sounds of God either. They just happened to think, maybe I'm just going to see if I can find a way to survive. But they, these four men with terrible skin disease, were the ones who discovered what happened when God showed up. As the sun went down, they headed out into the Arameans' camp. Okay, just uh, how would you go if this was you? Like, would you just walk down the middle of the road with your head high and go, I got nothing to lose, going to the Syrians' camp, going to see if there's any sign of life there? Or would you, like, hide from shrub to shrub and just still try to stay on the down low? I was trying to figure out what I would do. I think I would be, if you're this, like, it's just, just march. Just, just go ahead. Take the road. But however they walked as the sun went down, they kept walking into a silent night. No sounds of enemy camp grew louder as they approached the camps. They may have heard horses stamping or whinnying or donkeys braying in the night because the donkeys and horses were all still there. They were all tethered in the enemy camps. The tents were all up. So these four men, they just randomly slipped into one of the tents and they found like food and drink and clothing. Like, can you imagine the laughter or maybe, maybe they were still afraid and they stayed quiet as they, they feasted. Maybe their eyes were just glimmering and weeping as they ate the food and the drink. And they tried on soft clothing for their sore, sore flesh. So they took the food and they took the clothing and they grabbed silver and gold. There's all kinds of treasure in these tents. And they took it away and stashed it in a secret place. They're like, I don't know what's going on in this tent, but we've, got, we've just got some treasure. We're going to keep it. Went back into a second tent, and they found the same thing. It's like, there's more food. There's more drink. They took that stuff away, and they hid it in their hiding place. And it finally dawned on them. This is true. Camp was actually abandoned. And then they thought to themselves, this news is for our community we dare not keep it just for ourselves. And so these, these four men went back to the city and they called out the good news to the gatekeepers. We went into the Syrian camp and like there's nobody there. Not a sound of anyone. Only tethered horses and donkeys and the tents. Gatekeepers sent the message on to the king who, of course, would not believe the news from four men who were not even allowed in the city. That's ridiculous. Even though Elijah had said, like, about this time today, about this time tomorrow, everything's going to be different. So the king, and I, I don't blame him, actually, was certain that this was a plot to lure his people out of the city and into an ambush. So he sent five guys with chariots, Maybe they thought it was a suicide mission. 
he was quite sure that they were going to get taken. But they confirmed the story. It was good news. It was good news. There was food. There was clothing. There was supplies. The invading army was gone. And then the people went out from the gates and plundered the whole camp. And so on that day, a sea of flour sold for a shekel and two seas of barley sold for a shekel, just like God said. The word of God from Elisha had come true. God was present. Their God had come to deliver them. Is there more to this story? Well, if you want to go past the PG rating, you can go back and read more. I will warn you that there are gruesome details. Beyond that, is there more to this story? Is there more to this story that could possibly connect with us here on a rainy summer Sunday in August? These are good stories to dig out every once in a while to remind us that when things get as bad as possible, God shows up. So, some questions for you. In the midst of our lives here, where are you experiencing scarcity? Where do you need God to supply something for you? A job, or a home, or a friend? The king eventually just went to ask to the only source he knew, to that crazy prophet. We can ask God. And where are you experiencing more than enough so that you could share? You can ask God to draw, draw your attention to the needs where you can generously become like God's presence in someone's life. And where are you wondering about God's presence? Have you ever wondered what God would sound like if he showed up with good news in your life? I never thought about the sounds of God until I was thinking about this. I don't know if you remember Elisha, the story about Elisha, the prophet before Elijah. He had gone through all kinds of stuff. He'd showed up the prophets of Baal, and then he had done, he brought rain after there was not rain, and then he became terrified. The queen went after him, and he ran and hid. And God took care of him. He fed him, let him rest, and then he said to Elijah, go up to that mountain. I'm going to pass by you there. So Elijah goes up on this mountain, and there's this huge windstorm that takes out part of the mountain, and then there's this, this, Earthquake, God's not in the wind. He's not an earthquake. And then a fire, God's not in the fire. And then there's this still small voice. And then Elijah steps out onto the side of the mountain, steps into that, and he hears God whisper to him. Sometimes we get so caught up in the things that we know to do that we forget that we long for the presence of God. And we long to hear him long to hear the sound of his voice. Have you ever decided that good news belongs to a community? I've thought much about these four men with skin disease who decided that good news belonged 
to a community that they couldn't even belong, belong fully to. They shouted to the community so that everybody could hear. The good news is that God is with us. The good news is that God is present in our lives. This is a gift for us. And we've heard the stories of Jesus living and dying and rising and coming again, and we stand right in the middle of that tension. He's lived and he's died and he's risen and he's gone. And we know that someday, man, he's coming back. But he's not exactly always making things easy for us all the time. But we know, don't we? We know that he's in the business of making things new. And so we join as God's people. We join him as we make things new. I want to read a prayer from Ephesians chapter 3. Lord, our response as we our response as we long for your presence is to get down on our knees before the Father, this magnificent Father who parcels out all heaven and earth. And I ask him to strengthen you by his spirit. Not a brute strength, but glorious inner strength that Christ would live in you as you open the door and invite him in. And I ask him that with both feet planted on love, you'll be able to take in with all the followers of Jesus the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breath. Test its length. Plumb the depths. Rise to the heights and live full lives, full in the fullness of God.